You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Welcome back to our Thursday night CT. We've been studying the book of Mark, and so far in the book of Mark, what we've seen is that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, spends the first 30 or so years of his life in relative obscurity as a carpenter in the little town of Nazareth. And then we've seen for the past year or so, he's been traveling around, getting quite a reputation, working miracles, teaching about the kingdom of God. But what Jesus did pretty early on in his ministry is he did something that was unusual for the rabbis of his day. He went out and he began picking disciples. Now back then, the student would pick their teacher. But Jesus went around saying, I want you, I want you, you come and follow me. And the reason he did this is because in the words of Robert Coleman in his masterful book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, Coleman writes, it all started by Jesus calling a few men to follow him. This revealed immediately the direction his ministry would take. His concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men the multitudes would follow. Remarkable as it may seem, Jesus started to gather these men before he ever organized a ministry campaign or even preached a sermon in public. Men were to be his method of winning the world to God. Yes, and at this point, these men have been following Jesus around for about a year. They've been watching him teach. They've been seeing him heal. They've been seeing him work miracles, casting out demons. They've been marveling at his words, confused at times, but learning. And now... In our passage tonight, he's going to tell them it's time to leave the nest. It's time for his little birds to get out and spread their wings a bit and try it on their own. But before we get to that, we're going to see one final lesson that Jesus needs them to learn before they go out on their own. And that involves a trip back home to his hometown of Nazareth. We read in Mark chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, which was his hometown. Yes, the little town of Nazareth. It was a small town with a big reputation, a bad reputation. This, this had probably 150 to 200 people, and Jesus' family would have been, you know, probably close to 10 of those. He grew up here, but, you know, when we read about Nazareth, we see they had a saying, can anything good come from Nazareth? It never ends up looking good in the Gospels. It makes you wonder, why would anybody want to live in Nazareth? Well, they probably didn't. And for the ones that could get out of town, the ones that could get out of there probably did. The ones that couldn't, I would think, resented the people that were finally able to shake free of the place they were from and move on to bigger cities. Yeah, the people of Nazareth seem to have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder, and they never come off looking very good in the Gospels. Jesus returns to Nazareth, although it is in his first trip back there since he began his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, we see he began his ministry there with a sermon in the very synagogue that he had been to perhaps a thousand times growing up. Every Saturday would have gone to this synagogue. And in Luke 4, they ask him to step forward and to preach. And he steps up and he begins to deliver a teaching. And his teaching angered people so much that by the end they had formed a mob and tried to throw him off the cliff on the edge of town. He narrowly escaped with his life, not a real good homecoming. But now, a year later, he returns with his disciples. And we'll see if he gets a, any better of a reception. The very next Sabbath, he goes back to that same synagogue, 
begins teaching in that synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed, which sounds good, but actually in the Gospels, that's usually not a good sign. It's, it can mean um, offended, shocked. Like, who is this guy? They begin asking questions. Where do you get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? You know, with the right attitude, those could be pretty good questions. But these were asked in a question of cynicism, sort of like, I wonder where he really gets his power. You know, the Pharisees accused him of getting his power from, the fer- from uh, Satan. And I wonder if uh, these people were wondering the same thing. You can see by their very next question, they begin scoffing. He's just a carpenter. They're like, we know your background. I mean, this is the guy that made my old plow that I've been using for the past 10 years. He, a carpenter was a respectable trade, but it was not a learned trade. This was not somebody who's going to go around teaching people about the kingdom of God. It wasn't someone to learn from. They're like, you know what? Why don't you just stick with what you know? Uh, unclogging toilets, uh, you know, blue-collar work. Don't go around trying to teach Jesus of Nazareth. We know who you are. And we... We know your family, too. You're the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon. His sisters live right here. So we see he had at least six siblings. And they're like, you're the son of Mary, which was an insult. Because usually they said the son of whatever your father's name was. But they knew his birth scandal. They remembered when his mom turned up pregnant a little bit too early to be pregnant, if you know what I mean. They're like, you are nothing but a bastard, a bastard child. And your siblings, you know, we know your siblings. You're coming in here. You're a carpenter from Nazareth of all places. You think you're, you think you're all hot stuff now? I mean, what's going to happen next? You're going to have your brother James write some scripture for us? Your brother Jude write some scripture for us? Come on. We know who you are. You obviously don't know who you are. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. The word, the verb here is skandalizomai. They were scandalized that Jesus would come in and try to teach them. And you know, some people are scandalized by the message of Jesus. He brings the good news, but the good news always has the bad news with it. The bad news is you've fallen short of God's standard. You're not good enough on your own. The good news is I'm, I've come to, to announce forgiveness. Grace is available. But some people, like the people of Nazareth, They can't look past the bad news. And they're scandalized. They're offended by the bad news. And they don't even think they need the good news. And this was the case with his hometown and even his family members were not believing in him at this time. And so Jesus tells his disciples, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. He says, you guys need to know before you go out on your own, Sometimes the people you care about the most, the people who think they know you the best, are the least likely to respond to this message. They're the least likely to listen. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And so he's like, he's not going to force this on them. He's not going to make them accept this. And he ministers to a few willing. And then he leaves. And yet this affected Jesus. It says he was amazed at their unbelief. One of only two times in the Gospels that Jesus is amazed by anything. Apparently, it's pretty hard to amaze the Son of God, but this was one thing that got to him. To see the rejection of the people he grew up with, his family members, this can be pretty difficult. Uh, It can be pretty shocking. But Jesus 
was affected by this, but his disciples needed to see not everybody's going to respond. They needed to see how do you handle rejection. And how does Jesus handle this? He says, all right, guys, let's go. And they move on to the next place. He went from village to village teaching the people. And this is where Matthew tells us he saw the crowds and had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The crowds kept growing in number. The crowds were huge. There was so much need out there, an ocean of need. And Jesus always knew that it was too much for him to meet personally as a human being. He had bigger plans and he knew that now was time, moved by compassion for the crowds, to move into the next phase of his plan. He called his 12 disciples together. And I'm sure they're like, all right, boss, where are we going today? And he said, we are not going anywhere. And like a good mama bird, he takes the baby birds and throws them out of the nest. He says, you guys are going to go out on your own. Earlier this spring, we had a, um, a bird decided to build it, uh, her nest right outside of our window in our back room. And so we saw the, the, the mom and the dad bird building the nest. And then we saw her sitting there for a while, obviously sitting on these newly laid eggs. And we saw, then we, we could hear there were little baby birds in there, but we couldn't see them yet. And then we reached a point where the mama bird would fly back and land on the nest and you'd see four little beaks pop up out of there. They got a little bigger. And then you, you could see them all sitting in the nest. Things were getting pretty crowded in there. And then one day we looked up and there was only three birds looked out in the backyard and there was a little bird hopping around the backyard with a mama bird sitting right on the fence. Watching this little bird kind of flap its wings and kind of take a little air and then land again. The next day we looked up, there were only two birds in the nest. And then one bird and then no birds. You know, that, that bird obviously couldn't fly when it got thrown out of the nest for the first time, but it was never going to learn to fly unless it got thrown out of the nest. Had to go and give it a shot and that's how the learning process goes. Or there's always that moment in, in the semester where you're learning for a couple of weeks and the professor says, okay, there's a test this Friday. And then all of a sudden, learning takes on a new level. And that's what happened here for the disciples. They were like, what? But now it was time. And it says he began sending them out. This word here, apostello was a technical term, to dispatch someone for the achievement of some objective. You know, someone who was apostello, they went out as the full representative of the one sending them. This is where the 12 disciples become the 12 apostles. That's where the word apostle comes from. It comes from that verb, apostello. They were the sent out ones. They were sent out as representatives, as envoys of someone greater. And they went out and what scripture tells us is that the apostles were sent in a very special way with special authority. And yet Paul says, we, we're all Christ's ambassadors. We've been sent with a message of reconciliation. We've got a mission. We've got a purpose to our lives. And I don't know if you ever wonder why your life feels so empty. It just feels purposeless. Um, you feel like there's these addictions in your life that seem to have incredible control over you. Things just seem, you get an exciting new experience and it just begins to deflate. What, what's wrong? The reason is, perhaps, your life lacks purpose. And what God gives us is he gives us an eternal purpose. He sent these guys out on a rescue mission with a message of salvation. And he sends us the same way. This is why he came. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And now he sends us out with a message of salvation. If you're a Christian, he sends you out on a mission. And how are you doing with that mission? 
He sent them out two by two. He didn't just send them out as lone, autonomous individuals. Two by two. And the point here is we need each other. We can't do it alone. Why do we need each other? Well, for one, so we can practice what we preach. Jesus said one of the distinctive marks of my followers will be your love for one another. That's how everyone will know you're my disciples. How are you going to show them your love for one another if you're all alone? What they need to see is they need to see what Christian relationships look like. They need to see the, the distinctive love, and that is so appealing that this is a new way. We need each other. This also gives us the support, the camaraderie we need to stand strong. We can benefit from each other's strengths. When I'm weak, the other can be strong. Um, as it says in Ecclesiastes 4, you know, if two are walking together, if one falls down, the other can help them up. There's a resistance to temptation. Um, there's just a strength that comes in numbers. Some of us have watched the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. Uh, I got a chance to read that book. And one of the points he makes in that book was how powerful this camaraderie was between this this certain company of troops that fought together all through World War II, the European campaign. And one of the points he makes, there was this one battle where they were surrounded. They didn't have enough cold weather gear. It was the middle of December. It was, they were in the middle of a cold snap. They were freezing to death in their foxholes. And what he says is, I interview uh, Winters, and he says, if all the men who had a legitimate reason to leave the front line and go back to the aid station in Bastogne, had taken advantage of their situation, there just would not have been a front line. It would have been a series of empty outposts with no one in them. Yeah, they all had enough medical problems, frozen hands, frozen feet, trench foot, diarrhea. They had enough to withdraw, but they all stayed at their posts. And why was that? Was it because they loved ar the army? Was it because they loved fighting? No, he says in the conclusion to his book, they thought the army was boring, unfeeling, and petty, and they hated it. They found combat to be ugliness, destruction, and death, and they hated it. Anything was better than the blood and carnage, the grime and filth, the impossible demands made on the body. Anything, that is, except letting down their buddies. They felt such a, a responsibility to one another, a love for one another, and they found in combat the closest brotherhood they ever knew. They found selflessness. They found they could love the other guy in their foxhole more than themselves. They found that in war, men who loved life would give their lives for them. A powerful bond formed in the trenches. And that's what the disciples had. That's what they had, and that's what we can have with one another. But we need one another. We need one another. And the early church took this very seriously. You never see them going around alone. Even if they ended up alone, they went and found somebody to go with them. They never forgot this command from Jesus. And we need to take this seriously too. You can't do this alone. You're not the Christ. You're someone who's been sent by him, and he sends people not alone, but he sends them with others. Maybe you need to let some other people into your life. Let some other people help. Maybe you need to help somebody else with what they're doing. This is not something to be done alone. And you're not going to make it if you're trying to do it alone. He gave them authority to cast out evil spirits. Remember the authority that he's just been demonstrating in the previous couple of chapters? He's just shown his power, and now he's giving that authority to them. He's saying, you guys can now do this as well. 
And again, the disciples, the apostles had a certain authority. We don't have things like writing scripture, for one. And yet, what we need to remember is that our battle is not against flesh and blood. That there is a spiritual battle going on out there. And as Paul says in Ephesians 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, he says, take up the full armor of God. Yes, Jesus has defeated Satan, as we've seen. And then he takes his arm and he hands it to us. And he says, put this on. You're going to need it. And we go in the strength of his might. And that's how we're able to stand firm and have authority over spiritual beings that wouldn't listen to us, but respect his authority. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick. No food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to even take a change of clothes. This is a cold season. I mean, this is um, probably wintertime, early spring before Passover. And he says, you need to go. And, um, you know, there's a lot of times where you're going on a trip and you're like, man, I got to get a new swimsuit. I got to get a towel. I got to get my food together. I got to make sure the car's ready. I got to pack my stuff. There might be a big packing effort. There was no packing effort for this. Jesus is like, you're, you're actually, you're ready to go right now. Like they show up just to see Jesus for the day. He's like, okay, guys, we're about to embark on a long journey with only the things you've got on you right now. You can see the urgency here. Later, he would loosen these restrictions. This was a short-term mission he was sending them on. Later, on the night of his crucifixion, he says, you remember when I sent you out before without stuff? He's like, did you ever lack anything? And they were like, no. And he says, okay, now you can take stuff. He's preparing them for a little bit of a longer-term thing, but right now, he needed them to see in this short-term mission that God was going to meet their needs, and they needed to learn that. And even though the restrictions would be loosened later, the principle still stands if you're going to serve Jesus, you need to trust him to provide all you need. He is the one who provides everything you need. The message, the power, everything. The direction. That's a lesson that we really need to, to meditate on. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so what it means is we need to travel light. We don't want to get too weighed down with the things of this world. As we learned in Mark 4, it's the things of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and those worries. That's what chokes out our fruitfulness. And we don't usually feel ready to go. Like those birds getting booted out of the nest. Probably don't feel ready to go, but then they find they are. And that's part of what's so exciting about serving God is you step out in these scary ways and you don't feel like you're ready. You don't feel like somebody like me could ever be used by him. I mean, we've got men representing the Almighty God. We don't feel ready. We don't feel adequate. But fortunately, our adequacy comes from Christ, who has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. So we don't consider anything as coming from ourselves or adequate in and of ourselves. Jesus said, you just need to go. And how amazing that must have been to see God provide. You've got to get to a little bit of a point of need. You've got to realize, I don't know what I'm going to eat tonight. And then when the food is provided, they're like, whoa. And they see God come through again and again for them. Wherever you go, though, he says, stay in the same house till you leave town. Yeah, not hopping from house to house. You can imagine this. They show up in a town and they're like, we're sent by Jesus of Nazareth. And we bring a message from him. And they begin preaching about the kingdom of God and the gospel and the good news. They begin healing people and somebody there is like, 
I've been wanting to learn about Jesus of Nazareth. I've heard about him. Can you come stay with me? Or they're like, I've been thinking about these things. I've been calling out to God. Come to my house. I want to hear more about this. And so they would go, and he says, I want you to stay in that house. You know, if they put something in front of you, you've got to eat it. You know, if that house is vegan, you're vegan for now. So you move on to the next city. You know, if the guy down the street's serving brisket and he says, come stay with me, you're like, no, I'm here. You know, false, you, these uh, traveling teachers would sometimes go, go to a town and they would milk that town for all it's worth. And Jesus says, that's not the way we're to be. There's a man or woman of peace there who I've picked out. If I want you in that town, and I'm going to lead you to him. And so God would lead them to the place they were to be, the people they were to minister to. And they weren't aloof from the people they were teaching. No, they were right there in and with the people who they were teaching and who they were, who they were ministering to. And I think this really helped lay the foundation for house churches. One of the most important structures of the early church was um, you, you see them going to a town, going to a house, and then just beginning a meeting there. These house churches became the backbone of the early church. And I think it started in part here. Go to a house, stay there, teach until it's time to move on. Of course, he says, if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave as a testimony against them. And so, like Nazareth, not everybody's going to be responsive. And he says, I want you to shake the dust from your feet. This was something that, in that time, when a Jew had to travel through Gentile territory, um, as soon as they left Gentile territory, they would shake the dust from their feet because they didn't want to bring that with them back into the, these Jewish towns. And um, it was a statement about the place they just left. And what Jesus is saying is, if a place won't listen to my teaching, you treat them like Gentiles. That, that's how they are to be viewed. Um, they are to be viewed as unbelievers. And shake the dust from your feet. And you even see some of this in the book of Acts, this practice. Um, it seems kind of unloving. So people are like, but shouldn't you stay there? Shouldn't you just not give up on them until they respond? Well, I mean, not according to Jesus. It's not unloving. Here's a couple points to consider. For one, if we keep pressing the issue after people say they're not interested, we might further alienate them. You know, Jesus didn't force anything on anybody, and as his disciples, as his representatives, we shouldn't either. You know, they might be responsive later. They might just need some time. Might, uh, it might be that now's not the time in their life for this. And God's got to do some work in their life to get them to a point where they're finally ready to hear this. And then meanwhile, while these people are unresponsive, others get a chance to hear. He says, Jesus, just go on to the next town. There's plenty of time to get back to those unresponsive people. And I think the way Jesus handled the people of Nazareth is a pretty good example. You know, he goes there in Luke 4, and they're so angry, they try to throw him off a cliff. He goes there in Mark 6. And um, they seem very scoffing. They're maybe not quite as murderous this time. But they're mocking him. They're insulting him. They're not interested. He goes back in John 7. His brother's like, oh, you're going to go to Jerusalem and show them who you are? And Jesus is like, you guys just go on without me. I'll see you later. But then, after the resurrection, he shows up to his brother James, for example. And James falls on his knees in worship. He says, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I didn't believe in you. And then James becomes a pillar of the early church. He becomes known as a man of prayer. What's he doing in prayer? He's just, he's hanging out with his older brother, making up for all the time he lost, speaking with him. James was finally ready. 
the time was finally right. So I think Jesus modeled this pretty well for his guys. It's probably something we can learn from that as well. You know, we can't force people to accept the message. And we shouldn't even try. However, we can pray for people. And we can check back in periodically. You know, our prayers, they're not going to force somebody to receive Christ, to say yes to God. But through our prayers, God can make it a lot harder for them to say no. He'll work in their life. And uh, he will marshal his powers to move and uh, to convict them. And you hear a lot of stories of somebody's not receptive, a family member maybe, and then a year later, five years later, 10 years later, 20 years later, they are receptive. And so we need to have patience. Sometimes it takes a while with people. We need to have patience. We need to give it time. And uh, we need to pray for people. We need to love people. And we need to give them some space too. So finally, the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. So they were doing the miracles of Jesus and they were bringing the message of Jesus, the works and the words of Christ. And of course, Mark is giving a very condensed version of their message. They probably were just preaching what Jesus preached right from the beginning. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Yes, the gospel. Yes, that God has brought forgiveness. And even though you fall short of his, his standard, he's offering forgiveness to anybody that's willing to admit they need it. So, what have we seen here? What we've seen is that Jesus came with a mission. And he knew that mission was too big to be accomplished alone. This mission was going to eventually spread out all over the entire world and was going to take a long time. It's a mission that's still going today. And so he wasn't just living for that one generation, but he was thinking about the whole generation and the generations to come. He had the long view and the wide view. And so he called disciples and he invested in them and he literally staked his ministry on these guys. He put all his chips right there on discipleship and on investing in others. And yes, he ministered to the masses, but more and more as it goes on, he focuses in on these men. And he gave them a purpose. He sent them out with a specific mission and a message to bring. He gave them a message to proclaim. He also gave them the power to carry out that purpose. They didn't do this on their own. They could never do this on their own. It was done in his power, under his authority. He gave them coworkers because we don't go alone. We can't go alone. We need other people. They were to do this as a body of Christ. And finally, he called on them to do the same for them to go and make disciples, for them to teach those disciples to do everything he had commanded them. And that's our mission today. Why don't we pray? Lord, we are so thankful that you have not left us aimless, purposeless here, but you've sent us out with a mission, God. You fill our lives with meaning. God, I'm so thankful that we don't do this alone or on our own strength, but you've given us other people to do this with. You've given us the power to do it. And it is so exciting to serve you, God. And I pray the people listening in here, that they would learn the joy of a relationship with you and the joy of not stopping there, but of going on to serve you and seeing you work powerfully through them. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.